right, guys, welcome back to episode 56 of the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke. And on this episode, I had the pleasure in interviewing precision nutrition coach, Brian St. Pierre. On this episode, me and Brian discussed many topics, including Brian's background, Brian's influences, problems that Brian sees within the nutrition field, as well as many facets of the precision nutrition system, including how to change clients' habits, PN's take on fat intake, as well as Brian's take on whole grains and gluten. There were many other topics discussed throughout this show, and I hope you guys really, really enjoy it. Mr. Brian St. Pierre, it is an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on my podcast. Uh, it really truly is. I've, I've been aware of who you were ever since your time working with Eric Cressy and always was really uh, interested in your blog and the nutritional articles you used to put out. So it's really great to have you on the show. If you can, just for the listeners, fill us in a little more on your background. Sure. Well, first off, Robbie, thanks for having me. Um, it's been a while since we've been in touch. So my background, like you noted, I worked at Cressy Performance uh, for three years as a strength coach. And then I went back to school for my master's in, in nutrition and to become an RD. Um, and then after that, I transferred over to Precision Nutrition, where I've, I've been ever since. And so I do a lot of work at PN, uh, work with like lead athletes and teams, regular folks, uh, do a lot of writing, presenting, things of that nature. Brian, who, who would you say have been the biggest influences on you as a coach, be it both as a nutrition coach and as a strength coach, and then influences on you then personally as, as a human being? Hmm. Uh, well, first, you know, in terms of influences as a strength coach, obviously, you know, Eric Cressy would probably be the highest just because, you know, I worked for him for three years, and that's where I really learned how to assess people and program and, and, and to coach. Quite frankly, mm. um, Tony Genocor as well. And he, while I was there, and you can get other guys, you know, Mike Robertson, Mike Boyle, um, you know, people like that. So Eric, by far, though, the biggest influence in terms of a strength coach, and in terms of nutrition, you know, obviously uh, JB, you know, John Berardi would be a huge influence. He was a big part of the reason why I got in this field in the first place. Uh, and there are guys, you know, Alan Aragon, Stephen Guyanay, um, people like that. And so as a person, boy, that's, a, that's almost a tougher one because there are so many things that influence you know, the way you act and the way you think. I mean, obviously, I sounds kind of cliche, but my parents, right? The uh, most important influence. Then my wife and kids. You know, having Getting married, having kids definitely changes your perspective on the world. I think you come to appreciate your parents more once you're a parent yourself. Um, you know, so things like that. And obviously, you know, professionally, even as a person, you can get into... I don't know about necessarily specific mentors, but authors whose works I think have helped me, you know, Stephen Covey, uh, Carnegie, and How to Win Friends and Influence People, um, the list would probably go on and on, but that would be a good starting point. I, uh, I obviously haven't fully appreciated my parents yet, because I've, no <laughs> I've, I've no children of my own yet, so, but I get, I get where you're coming from. Just with regards to precision nutrition and with John, like, how did that come about? How did he ask you on board? Honestly, like once I left Cressy Performance and I, um, you know, I was back in school for my masters and to be an RD, I always planned on, on just working for myself, uh, starting my own like Cressy Performance essentially in in Maine, in, in my home state. Um, you know, with a bigger focus on nutrition, obviously, since that was my true area of expertise. And then, you know, as I was close to wrapping up my masters, um, PN sent out uh, an email to their newsletter list that they were they were looking to hire. Um, some coaches. So I figured, what the hell? You know, I'll apply. If I don't get it, no big deal. I'll just go on with my what my plan was anyway. Uh, but if I do get it, you know, 
problems nutritionally uh, when I was younger, when I was in my undergrad, and was a big reason why I decided to switch from engineering to nutrition. So I just applied, uh, and lo and behold, I was one of the two guys that, that they hired of the 300 or so that applied. So, you know, it helped that JB knew who I was, he knew my work, obviously he knows Eric very well. Um, so it was, you know, right place, right time, right opportunity. Right, right, great stuff. In your opinion, Brian, what would you say are the biggest problems you see within, let's just start with nutrition first, so what would you say are the biggest problems you see within the nutritional profession? The biggest problem I see is generally people have, um, when they go to help someone, they don't approach it from like the, like the big picture perspective. Now, they get very, a lot of coaches get honed in on small details. Uh, you know, really focusing on nutrient timing, or really focusing on, oh, we gotta, we gotta really backload your carbs. That's why, you know, that's why you're not making progress. Or whatever, whatever example you want to give, they, they tend to focus on one thing that may have worked for them, or has worked for a few clients, and they get hyper focused on it, and kind of forget the big picture um, of nutrition, and that there are many limiting factors, or there, with any client, the what, what might help them might not help another client. So you, you have to be more of a nutritional agnostic. And use whichever tool is appropriate for that client, not whichever tool you just happen to fancy at that time. Mm -hmm. Then, if we were to transfer that same question to training, because I know I know you have a big background as a strength coach, what would you say are the biggest problems you see within the, the fitness profession, if you want to say? Mm, I, it's a problem that I think has just continued for a long period of time: is that people tend to hop from one idea to another. It, it happens in nutrition as well, but with training, same thing. People go from um, you know, training super hard and heavy with long breaks to CrossFit to there's just seems to be this consistent hopping from, from trend to trend rather than just developing, you know, an approach that works for you at that time. Like my training is different now than it was, you know, when I was in college and playing rugby. I'm, you know, much older, I have kids, I have a job, so your your training has to evolve and that's fine, but not in a way where it's just uh, inconsistent in terms of your approach. Great stuff. If if I was to you know contact you, Brian, say, listen, I'm very interested in being a client of yours. What happens then? Take me through the process. What what's your assessment? What's your screening? Like, how do you eventually come up with an individualized nutritional plan for someone? Uh, well, first and foremost, I would I would chat with you first to see if it's a good fit. And I, I don't take many clients these days since you know, I work full time for PN. So yeah. okay, you know, I take some here and there, but it's it's on a limited basis. And then after that, uh, if we determine it's a good fit. And then I have you fill out you know, a couple questionnaires, uh, pretty thorough, like nutrition questionnaire, health and injury questionnaire, and a three-day food log. I, I like to see you know what you're eating now, where you're coming from, you know, so I can meet you where you're at, rather than just giving you arbitrary recommendations. I like to know what your intake actually looks like, and then we go from there. You know, if if you're someone who you know, I feel it has a lot to work on. We might start with something very basic, you know, emphasizing protein, emphasizing vegetables, whatever the case may be. If you're someone who has been doing a lot of things right, just can't seem to figure out the last few behaviors to really get you over the top, you know, we, I, I identify that for you as well. So it, it all stems from a combination of the questionnaires, identifying your goals, identifying what I perceive to be as strengths and weaknesses, and then looking over your food log, you know, where, where are you going... Where are you doing things well? Because I like to really highlight the positive. You know, keep emphasizing the things that are that I think are, are reasonable, intelligent choices, and then try to find the few areas that I think are holding you back. 
So would you be more kind of, would you ear a lot more on the side of, you know, Occam's razor, kind of the more simple solutions, probably the more correct one for the individual? Because you see a lot of people are like, you know, straight away lab testing, HRV. Well, one thing I really got from PM was like, you know, most of the clients you're going to work with are just going to be like, instead of eating this, replace it with this, even if what you're replacing it, you want to replace with, it still isn't like the most optimal. So would you think that, a problem you're seeing as well is that people are just getting too complex with the assessment protocols you know when really they just need kind of simpler things to introduce to people absolutely you know and with the vast majority of the population that, that you know the fitness industry works with and whenever you increase complexity you decrease consistency yeah so decreasing consistency is the name of the game right that is the key to consistent progress or, or progressive success uh so if you decrease consistency, even if your program is technically, physiologically superior, if people don't stick to it because it's too hard, then it's going to fail. You know, so I'd rather people bring their B game every day than to sometimes bring their A game, sometimes they you know, fall off and bring a C or a D, you know what I mean? Yeah. So if they can be more consistent, then they'll be more apt for those behaviors to become ingrained and just become routine and part of what they do. Okay. And then over, over time, if they want to take it up a notch, you can do that because you already have a good framework in place. Yeah. If they don't, if they're content with where they're at, then that's cool too. I'm going to uh, I'm going to steal that quote from you. I, I'll, I'll give you credit though. Uh, so uh, this, that was a great quote. Yeah, I don't even think you realize what you just said there. Whenever you increase complexity, you decrease consistency. What? That's a great line right there. Oh, that's one of my favorite lines. I'm, I'm well aware of it. I use it all the time. Oh no, that yeah, that was really really good. I have just written scribbled underneath my notes now because I'll probably put that into a PowerPoint. With full credit to you, of course. Um, just uh, moving on from that, you know, and, and a couple of people are, I'd say a lot of people listen to this because I put up my Facebook and all that I, I just recently did precision nutrition level one and, and just passed it. I found the course absolutely brilliant now and I absolutely, for, and I keep saying that the actual textbook, it was such an enjoyable textbook to read, like as textbooks go, I actually read every single page of the, the 460 pages in it and I, I just edited a flew through it, but I suppose what I really initially bought it for wasn't so much the sciences. I love physiology and actually, and I loved reading the physiology again, but I really bought it for that unit to how to coach people, how to break habits. So can you just maybe touch in on, let's start off with the, the categories of that kind of high motivation, low motivation, um, you know, low skilled, high skilled, those four categories of people, maybe explain that to, to the listeners. Yeah, and that's something, it's, it's funny you bring that up because I actually was just, uh, I was just in New York City this past weekend we pro- I provide like continuing education for um, Equinox trainers. Equinox is like a high-end gym chain in the U.S. Yeah, Jerlyn Jer- Jer- Cooper Smith used to work there, didn't she? Yeah, yes, exactly. Yep, that's actually how the whole process got started. She was one of the main contacts. Um, so yeah, I know Jerlyn well. And so to be like their highest level trainer, you have to do the PN certification, and then I go in and, and help them and, and with the process and things like that. But anyway, the whole point is. Um, you know, we were trying to, to discuss how to evolve the program and how to help them, you know, help their coaches get even better. And one of the things they were asking is, you know, they still have some clients that they have a hard time getting to change, like no matter what they do. And so I kind of brought up that exact rubric, right? So you have low motivation, high motivation, low skill, high skill. If you have a client who's low motivation, even if they're high skill, you know, there there are simply, quite frankly, limits as a coach to what you can do. Like if they're just not, they don't desire change, you, you can't force change upon them, right? You can't control other people's actions. You can give them the tools, you can give suggestions, you can provide appropriate coaching talk and you know psychological 
uh, use of psychological tools and skills, but if they don't want, truly want to change, there's only so much you can do. Um, and that's an important thing to keep in mind. Sometimes as coaches and as trainers, we get frustrated when it feels like a, a client is, is stuck and not making progress. And not making progress not because they we can't figure it out, but they're not making progress because they're choosing just not to implement strategies or habits that they said they will implement. Um, so oftentimes it's important to keep in mind that it's, you can't quote-unquote fix or, or help every single person. Right? It falls on a bell curve. You're going to have some people who are super high-motivated, high-skilled. They're in you know, one quadrant. You're going to have many people who fall in the middle, somewhere between you know, high-skill, low-motivation versus high-motivation and low-skill. Those are the majority of your clients. And you're going to have the low-motivation, low-skill at the other end. Um, and so when you have low-motivation, low-skill clients, they're the hardest ones to get through to. Not that they're not worth helping, um, but oftentimes, especially if you use like motivational interviewing techniques, they're the kind of people that are they're not at a stage of readiness to change. And when you assess their stage of readiness, they're nowhere near at pre-contemplation or contemplation. They're, they're not ready, quite frankly. Um, and so that's a conversation you can then have with the client or what they're ready and willing to do. And maybe this isn't the time and the place. You know, unless they, they if they want to keep spending their money because it's like having a social hour with you, you know, well, that's up to you to decide if that's worth it for you or not. But some clients come to you just for that. Um, so it's really, it does help to, to assess, you know, where clients stand on that spectrum. Are they high skill, low motivation? Well, you have to have a discussion about that. But if they're high skill, high motivation, those are everyone's favorite clients, right? Those are the ones that you put testimonials of and you're the most proud of because they kick ass. They come in, they're willing to do what you ask them to do, they work hard at it, they get, get good results. But they're, again, only a percentage of your population. So really, the ones, if you can really learn to help the low skill, high motivation people who just need, to, need help on how to get there and what to do, and the low, the high skill, low motivation, if via appropriate coaching methods, you can help to facilitate some change, that's where you really see, you know, good results in your clients. Yeah, like it's, uh, I, I, I seen the, I, I seen those four quadrants before, and, and uh, but, it, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was kind of, I actually, the, the original place I saw it was with the IYCA uh, level one years and years ago. I saw Brian uh, Grasso talk about it in regards to, you know, obviously coaching kids, but it was, you know, kind of just as a refresher, you know, that it, it applies to every aspect of life, obviously not just to training kids, but to anyone, yeah. you know, training adults, nutritional strategies with adults, making health and wellness changes. So it was very good to see it again. And what, what really got me was I, I actually know a lot of people, a lot of my friends who play Irish sports here who would be in that sort of low motivation, high skills. And what, mm-hmm. I, lo- what I loved in Precision Nutrition was, was like, this individual does not respond well to rhetoric, you know? So like, come on, we can do it. They hate right, that. Right. And, and I know, I, yeah, I know those guys. Like I, I have friends like that, you know, and they're like, oh, this, you know, if they hear someone trying to be real, like passionate and give a talk, they, they just roll their eyes and go, and there's nothing for them, you know? So, but I just, I really liked all you know, those four categories and it was, it was really good because, you know, like I think at the end of the day, you know, uh, a lot of us are very quick to say to, to to fire clients instead of kind of trying to figure out how can we, how can we get these people to to just change something very simple and maybe that could be the, that could be the thing that gets them you know just over the top of the hill and after that we could get a snowball effect and you know then they're on board and everything so I suppose that kind of goes into my next question then about you guys went on and talked about level one level two level three clients when you went on from the kind of low motivation high skill categories uh-huh. 
So maybe for the listeners then, just speak about what is the differences then between level one clients, level two, and level three. Level one clients would be, for this kind of segue nicely, yeah, your level one clients would be people who are low-skill clients, right? who don't have any kind of nutrition knowledge or don't uh, apply their nutrition knowledge well to their intake. Um, it's basically people who are going to be you know, greater than probably 70% of your clientele yeah. uh, will be level one clients who just need to learn really, really basic stuff, appropriate food choices, and appropriate food portions, like eating the right foods in the right amounts, and just focusing on that, uh, you know, really working on minimally processed food consumption, you know, reasonable amounts of protein, carbs, and fats, learning what those things are, oftentimes they need even that level of education. So they're going to be the majority of your clientele when it comes to nutrition. Um, and people are just trying to emphasize consistency with, that's one thing we really try to work on with yeah. level ones is, is mastering consistency, right? Yeah. Uh, level twos would be, you know, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter of your clients, you know, maybe not even, um, but in, in that ballpark. And so, level two would be people who already have level one techniques mastered. They have, they eat good foods, they eat them in reasonable portions, and they eat pretty consistently. Now they want to take it up a notch. Maybe they're a competitive athlete. Maybe they're someone who has higher nutrient needs. Um, you know, they're a, an endurance athlete, or they have, you know, whatever else might be going on. And so maybe you implement some peri-workout nutrition protocols with them, or you go to some level of, like, carb cycling, um, you know, things of that nature. So you're taking it up a notch in terms of complexity. You really emphasize, okay, rather than just having reasonably good food choices, you can take it up even higher. Um, you know, to go from whole grains to sprouted grains, for example. And that would be an example of what you can do with a level two climb. Level three are going to be very rare, very rare clients in reality. And level threes are generally people who are only like level three for certain phases of the year. So this would be people like when JV in the past worked with George St. Pierre, uh, or if you're working with like an MMA fighter, they're a level three when they're trying to cut down to make weight. They need a specific diet. Everything has to be pretty on the ball, measured out. has to be very particular amounts of proteins, carbs, and fats because they have to be in a weight class. Right? Weight class athletes, when they have to make weight, they become a level three client. They need a very specific meal plan. Mm. Uh, other than that, I wouldn't consider any other clients to be level threes. Level threes are very advanced and tend to be rather temporary, uh, very specific portions of their training year. And then even when you're that high level of an athlete, uh, when you're not needing to make a very specific weight at a very specific time, you know, they probably tend to be level twos. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it, uh, reading through the sort of textbook, it, it was... It was just perfect timing because over the last year, it, it's kind of where my thought process has gone as a sort of coach. And I, as, and I use the word coach in all dimensions, you know, as a strength coach, as a, as a nutritional coach, as a therapist as well. You know, this sort of like less is more mentality. So like the old mistake, and we've already touched on this and I've already said to you, the old mistake was, you know, I wasn't meeting people where they were at. Like that is, that's the big one. Like for instance, if I could get someone to eat porridge instead of cocoa pops like that's a victory whereas i was trying to be like no you need protein straight in the morning and you you can you know you can only eat these carbs and you can only eat this yeah. where like now like I, and i even say this to kind of other coaches of course i teach it's like just like they're your level ones just getting to break one habit can you drink a glass mm-hmm. of water in the morning like even that can you just do that for me and then just try and even get that going you know so it was just refreshing to see you know that the likes of you know precision nutrition john ryan ryan andrews and yourself you know that you guys are kind of like listen it's all about consistency it actually 
you know, if, if it, it doesn't really matter if it's like, uh, you know, people are always going, oh, it's, you know, the grains. And now, even though I am, personally myself, we'll get into this, I'm, I always try and get people off grains. But if I can get someone to eat a whole grain rather than a, a packet of Skittles, it's a victory, you know? Absolutely. And that's, that's an important thing to keep in mind is many strength coaches and many trainers and nutrition coaches are, are basically level two eaters. But then they forget yeah. that most of their clients are level one. So they're trying to teach level two type protocols. You know, they're implementing carb cycling and people are yeah living on on you know marshmallows and skittles and you know uh, refined grain cereal for breakfast like that's they don't need to be carb cycling yet right that's much you're putting the cart before the horse yeah and so yeah. just like you wouldn't teach someone who's just learning how to exercise you know to do like a bench press versus chains like they need to learn how to do a push-up first yeah right yeah, so yeah. you got to progress them slowly and steadily and success breeds success so yeah. if they can see some success from drinking a glass of water every morning you know replacing their you know, poor breakfast choice with porridge or oats. You know, then that that tends to one good behavior leads to another, leads to another. Yeah. When we try to implement complex protocols, we go from eating horribly to, to carb backloading or carb cycling. It tends to be too big of a change, too complex of a change, so drastic from their current lifestyle that it doesn't last long term. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, ex- yeah, like again, just to sum that up in a few words is you know just start meeting people where they're at. And actually, I never really thought about what you just said there. We usually are level two eaters, and again, we're trying to force our sort of beliefs and ways of living on other people. You know, whereas again, you just got to meet them where they're at and those little victories. Uh, just moving on there, so I might as well get into the question about grains and gluten and whatnot now. Personally, myself, particularly I know here with Northern Europeans and Irish people, and you know everyone like in UK, Welsh, Scottish, and I've done a lot. I've done some research on it too. I'm just where's that book that I read? I think it was called Evolutionary Medicine. This book that I read, but uh, somewhere there, somewhere, I'm trying to look at my bookshelf. But in that book, they speak about that Northern Europeans definitely seem to not do well on any type of grains. But then you get a lot of people saying, "Ah, oh, this this non-C like gluten sensitivity is being blown out of proportion and whatnot." So. And again, going back to you know just what we've been speaking about previously about breaking habits, you know if someone will eat a better like a sandwich over a packet of Skittles, like we would prefer they had the sandwich with some quality protein in it. But just going with the grains thing, what are your thoughts on you know uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivity? Personally, myself, I've definitely always see a huge, huge change in it when I take it out of people's uh, diets. But uh, what's your take on it? Uh, my take on it is. I don't think it occurs, like non, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, so people who are sensitive to gluten but don't actually have celiac disease, yeah. I don't think it's as high as a percentage of the population as some people thought, you know, greater than 10%, for example. I do think it exists. Um, I have seen clients and people who, one in particular is a colleague, I mean, she's an RD, she's a, she's a, a very smart nutritional mind, um, and it took her a long time to figure out that she had a gluten sensitivity. And she didn't have celiac disease. She was tested over and over in multiple ways. Um, just removing gluten made her feel tremendously better. She was having like eczema and breakouts um, and just strange responses. There was actually a gluten in her shampoo. It took her a long time to figure that out. Um, so I think it does exist. I just think it's not as common as some people claim. In terms of getting people off grains, it's not a protocol that I generally use as a starting point, um, simply because I, I don't think there's really a need for it for most people. Now, the way I coach is, again, like I, like I said in the beginning, being like a nutritional agnostic. I'm neither pro nor anti pretty much anything. So if we're eating grains and we're finding that there are recurrent uh, issues or symptoms with clients, then maybe we try like an elimination diet and, and see if we can figure out what's going on. Maybe, maybe grains are a potential factor because 
again, they're not going to be perfect for everyone. I think many people do fine with them. Some people really thrive with them. Others don't do nearly as well. Again, I think most things uh, fall on a bell curve to some degree. So I tend to start with most clients pretty much in the middle. I don't have, it's my, my approach, because if you start on one end, no grains, how do you know that they wouldn't thrive on grains? Uh, versus if you start somewhere in the middle with reasonable amounts of grains, you know, getting other carbs from other sources, fruits, potatoes, green potatoes, um, and then you go from there. If there are consistent symptoms, even after, you, after you've improved carb choices and protein choices and fat choices, uh, you know, slow down your eating, you, you increase sleep, and if there are still consistent symptoms um, of issues, then maybe we look into it then, and then we eliminate them if needed, you know, because it's not even just about meeting the client where they're at, it's about doing what works best for that particular client, regardless of your personal dietary Yeah, beliefs. yeah. Like, uh, I know personally myself, you know, Dr. Tom O'Brien would have been a big influence to me in regards to, you know, gluten and, uh, and uh, non-seeded gluten sensitivity. Um, and I know, like, with regard, I know there's a lot of people who say, oh, but, you know, they're like, when I say to them, get off gluten, or maybe think about getting off gluten, they're like, oh, but I took the, you know, the celiac test or whatever. But, like, I know from reading uh, Tief Karazian's work, he's like, and listen to Dr. O'Brien, like, that the testing is usually brutal. Uh, like, I know in, in Dr. Decrease, uh, Karazian's book, he's like, a complete gluten antibody screen should include alpha, omega, gamma, and deaminated gliadin, wheat germ, um, and then glutomorphine, polo, and then what's the other one? I don't know, this one I can't pronounce. But then it has TG2, 3, and 6, so transglutaminase 2, 3, and 6. So they really should be in it, and for most people, it's not. So, But I, I understand what you're saying, again, meeting people where they're at. Like, I mean, if they're willing to go from really processed food to a whole grain sandwich, obviously that is going to be a massive victory. And I think something else I also heard, I don't know if it was on Ralph Wolf's podcast, but someone was saying, is is it the fact that people are so immunocompromised by the by the multifactorial things like the poor sleep, the, the high sugar, the trans fats, the omega sixes, you know, the the circadian mismatches, people up staying too late, screwing up their whole cortisol melatonin axis. Is it that plus eating grains? So is it the fact that their immune system is so compromised that they can't handle grains? Whereas if everything else is perfect, could they handle grain exposure kind of more often? So that sort of thing came into question. Uh, it's, it's certainly something to contemplate. I, I still think the uh, difficulty with grains is a, an over overestimated issue. I mean, it's uh, you look at the research on grains, controlled trial stuff, observational research, and you know the idea that grains cause inflammation doesn't hold water. When you look at observational research, whole grains. Uh, decrease inflammation, refined grains, increase it. We look at the controlled trials. Grains have no impact on inflammation whatsoever, positive right. or negative. Um, so to me, it's more of a, a niche thing where it's at the bottom of the bell curve. And that yeah. There are some people who truly don't don't tolerate grains, just like there are some people who don't tolerate any new, you know, any number of foods. Personally, I don't do well with broccoli, for example. Uh, even though it's an incredibly healthy food, it doesn't agree with me. And so I think it's tends to be a little bit overblown. Yeah. Um, I think there are definitely people who have issues with it, and by all means, if you're their coach and you notice it, remove it. But as a standard protocol, it's not something I necessarily recommend. And, and let's be honest, most people are not going to get that, that testing you just discussed. That is, oh, most yeah. doctors would be opposed to even doing it because it's up so so far outside there. Well, the, 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 only, the only place that does it, apparently, in the, in the world that I know of is, is Cytrix Labs. That's it. It's an American. It's the, the only one that I do. But, like, I'm just, again, I just I just like to discuss all angles. And it's just, again, sure. it's, it's just, you know, so the listeners can kind of go, hmm, no, it's interesting. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so it's more so for the listeners. But, like, 
exactly and again because of going through pn i'm definitely more in a position now where like i'd be like if if a client said to me oh, i'll eat a, a whole grain sandwich and again if that's better than what they're eating i'd be like yes that that, in the right yeah exactly so whereas before you know like say as i was saying earlier on like i'd be like no you have to eat like this it has to be all these meals straight away it was just i had no idea how to coach and form habits but when you start studying human behavior you realize right there's definitely a, a better way of doing this right so with regards to uh, i suppose like moving on from grains another sort of like to me personally and you this it's again this is more so for the listeners like i often hear whenever i'm doing interviews and podcasts i'm always like can you just ask some better questions like this surely this has been beaten to death but some people just like to hear these ones um so just with regards to carbohydrates i mean this will only be a few minutes or we'll touch on it but you know carbs was the like gary tops with that book and he was like you know don't eat carbs carbs make you fat and all this and, and i think people like really got on carbs as like you know like they're just like right or gary tops he really just attacked carbs too much and blah, blah blah but like he was he did for a lot of part get a lot of things right in his book but of course we know that with regards to carbs it depends is the answer who are you talking about and what do you mean by carbs broccoli is a carbohydrate skittles are carbohydrates so what do you, what do you mean so in your kind of thing what are the problems you see with these kind of broad carb generalizations uh well i see a lot of problems like when i i did a whole talk a couple of years ago about uh Insulin is kind of misunderstood, and, and oh, it works with carbohydrates as well. Yeah. Um, you know, the Atkins craze and the really low carb craze has, has waned a little bit, mm. but you still get a lot of statements from clients about, uh, I know if I want to lose weight, I need to cut back on carbs, and that may be true, if, you know, to their specific intake, but it may not be. You know, you don't need to eat a, a bunless hamburger to, to have success. Yeah. Um, it's okay to have some some carbohydrates, and yeah, you're right. Choices like. Carbohydrate types make a difference. You know, refined, refined grains or refined sugar products, Skittles, you know, cakes and pastries and white bagels and things of that versus having, uh, you know, whole grain products or sprouted grain products or any type of minimally processed carb, whether a potato, a sweet potato, oats, any type of fruit, something like that. That's a big difference in terms of vitamin and mineral content, water content, uh, fiber content. You know, in terms of effects on on hunger and satiety. You know, some of Gary Tobbs' work about insulin, some of this is the mark. I mean, insulin is actually a satiety hormone. You know, when you ingest carbohydrates, uh, one of the ways your your brain knows that there's food coming on board is glucose rises and insulin rises. Insulin gets to your hypothalamus and tells your hypothalamus that we have nutrients coming in. It's one of many diverse uh, elements that, that works in terms of a satiety hormone or a satiety mechanism. Isn't isn't so that the isn't that the reason why a lot of clients say they're not hungry in the morning? You know, because they have blood sugar issues. They usually have high insulin in the morning. They're like, I can't eat in the morning. And that usually tells us they have blood sugar issues, but it's usually because insulin's up, isn't it? Uh, I don't know, but usually it, it could be. There are some people who just don't aren't hungry in the morning and choose not to eat, and that's that's fine. There are, and that can actually go to circadian rhythm type things. Yeah, uh, there are yeah. people who do better eating more in the morning. Some people do better eating later at night. And again, it comes back to doing what works best for the client, not just do eating what your preconceived perceptions are. Oh, absolutely. Your yeah, yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. You know, so in terms of you know carbohydrates, I think there are many things at play. You know, what, what are their needs? Are they an active, lean individual with great metabolic flexibility? You know, so do they do well with some carbohydrates and some fats in their diet? Are they someone who's sedentary with any metabolic? Dysfunction, you know, maybe they have metabolic syndrome or prediabetes or a diabetic. 
Well, if that's the case, then yeah, their carbohydrate needs are going to be far less. A, there's less demand for it, but not exercising and expending a lot of glucose. And B, if you have metabolic dysfunction, like metabolic syndrome or diabetes, that's a, that's a disease of you don't handle glucose well. So why would you crank, consistently crank up glucose? Yeah. You know, so you keep it lower until either it's resolved or just as a better way to manage it. But in people who don't have those issues, um, you know, especially like fitness professionals who exercise a lot, uh, you need carbohydrates to help keep testosterone out, to help keep thyroid functioning, to help keep cortisol down, to help you refill glycogen stores and have appropriate energy reserves for when you're exercising. I mean, and, and there are some needs. Some people do better on low carb. Some people do better on high carb. I think most people do better somewhere in between with a relatively moderate intake. But it, it depends on, you know, how active you are, your genetics, disease state, uh, and carb type, carb sources, whole versus you know, minimal, whole or minimally processed versus refined sources. Just moving on then to. Uh to fat one like one big thing in precision nutrition is to have this kind of third split of fat but uh what what's the position of pn and yourself because i know it was a textbook and obviously it has to be approved i don't know by maybe some american board so like while i while the saturated fat uh kind of perspective in the book was conservative it was still very good for a textbook i expect it to be even more conservative because i know it's kind of hard to get your textbook approved sometimes if you say that oh saturated fat's grand which which i personally believe it's absolutely fine but um, like, what is your personal, you know, take off saturated fat? Because in the book, in Precision Nutrition, they don't seem to like mention butter or coconut oil or palm oil as good fats. They were kind of more leaning towards olive oil and fish oil. And mm. I mean, the, the position tends to be uh, it depends on context. You know, if someone is um, fit and healthy and exercises, and the rest of their diet is composed of you know mostly minimally processed foods. Yeah, some butter and some coconut oil will probably be good things. Like you need saturated fat as part of your diet. It helps with uh, cell membrane integrity, keeping things firm enough, um, things of that nature, for testosterone production, sex hormone production, for actually having appropriate levels of inflammation to recover from an injury or something along those lines. So saturated fats are important. Uh, however, in, in most, like say level ones, for example, level one clients, they don't need to be encouraged to eat more saturated fat. Usually. Usually there isn't a saturated fat deficiency in a lot of level one clients. Now, if there's someone who's maybe had some level of disordered eating or has had a really um, gone through a lot of different dietary approaches, Weight Watchers, and you know whatever the case may be, well then it might be an issue where they're actually under consuming saturated fats. But that's usually not the case with most clients. Um, however, you know our position is yeah. You want to get a, a pretty reasonable, reasonably balanced intake of all three types of fat, your polys, your monos, and your saturates. But you can do that pretty easily. You know, you have a little bit of butter with your eggs at breakfast, for example. And maybe you have some, some chia seeds or some nuts in a, in a super shake later in the day for some monounsaturated fats, you know, some almonds or peanut butter. Uh, later in the day, you take some fish oil with your lunch where you have some, an avocado with it. So you're getting some monos, you're getting some polys. Uh, at, at dinner time, you cook you cook your dinner and your vegetables in olive oil, so getting more monos. And you can also, if you're having a meat, you're getting some saturates, and maybe you have, you know, some walnuts with with your dessert, a little bit of, of you know, whatever the case may be. Um, so get some more polys. You just have to have you have a reasonably broad intake, a mix of nuts, some olive oil, some avocado, and then just some protein sources, eggs, red meat, dairy. You're going to get some saturated fat. Mm -hmm. um, and so you. You don't have to be perfect about it. You don't have to try to, to calculate it out to the exact degree. It doesn't need to be that specific. It's just to get a reasonably, you know, balanced intake.
food sources. Yeah, I, I guess in Ireland actually, the I would say it's slightly different here, like because a lot of level one clients that would come to me, they actually aren't eating saturated fat because they're eating butter sources that aren't they're trans fats and then mm, they're cooking with, they're cooking with vegetables and eating margarine. And then if you say because if you said to them, would you have butter? Oh no, that's saturated fat. Oh, they usually also have low fat dairy and they actually are not taking in much saturated fat if you were to look at it that's just the clients that I perceive right. I, know, I know in America though like you know they're getting massive burgers with massive buns and sugary yeah. drinks so they're lots getting lots of cheese lots of ice cream yeah so like they're obviously getting a big whack of either way so I know the big study that came out there recently on you know fish oils causing you know prostate cancer was it what was your what was your take on that and actually before you get into that too Brian uh, have you ever read Ray Pete's work you know Ray Pete is completely anti-fish oil he's like fish oil is polyunsaturated fats it's gonna it's the worst thing ever and you know it dries up estrogen and it's anti-metabolic and whatnot so if you want to answer those two questions yeah, I'll briefly touch on Ray Pete's work. I think Ray Pete is a bright, very bright guy. I mean, you read his work and you can't help but feel he's a bright guy. Um, I feel much of his work is, is misguided and, and drastically cherry-picks the data. When you look at the big picture on fish oil, um, there are mountains of evidence of benefit. Is it going to change your life? No. Is it going to provide some reasonable heart, eye, joint inflammation benefits? Yes. Uh, I think the data is actually pretty clear on that. Now, if you're taking in excessive amounts and excessive amounts of polyunsaturates, especially with low levels of saturates for a long period of time, uh, that could cause problems, right? Because your cell membranes are, are dictated by the type of fats you eat. Mm. So too many polys and not enough saturates, and your membranes become too fluid, and your lipoproteins become more prone to oxidation. Yes, that is theoretically plausible. Uh, but if you're eating a reasonable amount of, of polys and then take a little bit of fish oil and getting monos and saturates as well, I find it highly unlikely, and the research makes it clear it's highly unlikely to be an issue. So I think he's a bright guy who I think chose to be a little bit um, you know, against the grain because it would give him a, a niche market to be in and to be a lone wolf and, and something along those lines. So <laughs> bright guy, but I, I would take his, his work with a grain of salt I think Chris, I'm fairly sure Chris, I haven't read it yet, but I'm fairly sure Chris Masterjohn uh, did a really good piece on saying, you know, on like what he thinks Ray is kind of missing with this overall fish oil. And, you know, Chris is pretty fucking smart, like, so. He's a pretty bright guy, too, absolutely. Yeah. If, um, what was I going to say to you there as well? And in regards to, to fish oil, so what are your recommendations with regards to fish oil? Like, so my recommendations with regards to fish oil and PM recommendations in general are, are somewhat moderate, you know, like, take a one to two grams of EPA and DHA per day. So you're looking at, depending on the source, you know, three to six grams of fish oil on a daily basis. Um, if you're in that ballpark, you'll probably be just fine. You'll get the majority of the benefits without any type of downsides. You know, if, it's when you take really high doses for long periods of time that you're putting yourself at risk for some potential uh, issues. But if you're taking, you know, two, three, four, five, six pills of fish oil a day, uh, and you're getting, like I said, one to two grams of EPA and DHA combined. Those are the, the healthy fats in fish oil. That's what the American Heart Association, or what research in general just finds to be like the sweet spot. You know, where you're, you're getting enough to, to get a therapeutic, a therapeutic dose where you get benefits in heart health and eye health and joint health and brain health, um, but not so much they run into issues and not so little that it's not doing anything. Yeah, yeah. 
it's a recommendation that I think it was a one gram for every percent of body fat with someone, wasn't it? If they were trying to lose weight initially. Yeah, that was something that I mean, you know, it's something that JB still still likes a little bit, but it's not something we use as a practice very often. You know, there might be specific circumstances where a coach working with a client does if that's appropriate, um, but it's not something we use as a standard protocol for the most part. It is something that's that's a, as a tool, and it's there if, if a coach feel like, feels like it's required or it'll be helpful, um, especially if someone's suffering from a lot of inflammation, uh, if they have some joint issues, if they have some like high triglycerides, something along those lines. Not that we're using it as medical nutrition therapy, but you know, if, if they have a lot of, of issues with inflammation, something like fish oil can help, then we might have them go a higher dose uh, for but only for a limited period of time, you know, yeah. six weeks maybe. Uh, and then it's it's brought back down just to kind of help tamp and tamp down that inflammation because you're like I said before your cell membranes are dictated by the type of fat you eat. So if you take in a high dose of fish oil, it'll help constitute your cell membranes with more omega threes, increasing cellular fluidity, increasing cell to cell communication, decreasing inflammation, and then it just becomes a maintenance dose from there. One thing I, I think JB is definitely sort of known for, and, and like you know you never like to to put people in boxes like you know everyone like McGill is a bracing guy and Gray just does FMS and Boyle's just saying like what I think one thing that JB is kind of uh, always known for is he's very much a fan of you know a lot of protein now not necessarily a lot but consistent intakes of protein and you'd often hear uh, you know a lot more of the vegetarian crowd you know say that all that protein is really hard on your pancreatic enzymes so what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I'd like to see some hard evidence for it you know, I think don't, uh, don't get don't get me wrong. I love my protein now, so. Right. No. No. I know, and, I, and I've heard that too, but I've never seen uh, like robust evidence for that to be the case. It's it sounds like an interesting and possibly compelling theory, uh, but I I've, I've never really seen issue with it. I mean, we we've right. had tens of thousands of clients who directly coach increase their protein intake. Uh, without any adverse reports on pancreatic enzyme production or yeah, digestion, yeah. if anything, many clients have improved reported digestion. I think yeah, it's I, I think it's more so actually just cooked food in general. So like if you are if you are eating some cooked protein, but you're getting a lot of like berries that are you know obviously not you know berries so they have their enzymes and you know some salad that obviously has the enzymes in it. I think it's overall cooked food intake really maybe. <laughs> and I still find that one interesting because when you cook protein. You denature the proteins and actually make them more digestible. Like for example, eggs. If you eat I've heard that too, eggs, yeah. I've heard the that protein too. the protein digestibility score is is lower than if you eat cooked eggs because the cooking actually denatures like uncouples the proteins and makes them more easily digested. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I find that uh, there even from like a, even if you have an evolutionary perspective, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence. A lot of anthropologists believe that our brains started to really evolve once we developed fire and create. Yeah, I think I think there I think there's a book called Catching Fire. I think I think that's the name, and it's all to do with when we create fire. Yeah, that the, right. that you know that the fire that basically creating fire allowed us to you know get more sort of uh, benefit from the food. Like I, I I've often heard that you know when you cook food, you get more sort of release of some vitamins and minerals, but you ruin the enzymes, and then so it's kind of like this yin yang. But like everything, there's like a benefit and, and a non benefit to things, right. you know. So yeah, so if you're eating some cooked meat, and like you said, you're eating some. Uh, some fruit with it. I mean, is that, does, does that not offset it? I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't have the answer. I don't think anyone has the answer yeah, there. That, yeah. It's all speculation and, and theory to some degree. But I think if you get a broad mix of, you know, cooked proteins, uh, cooked and uncooked veg 
and like raw fruits, maybe some cooked or uncooked nuts. I mean, and some seeds. Like you're gonna get plenty, a nice mix of, of uncooked foods and cooked foods. That's yeah. probably your best of both worlds. Yeah. You're getting a little bit of everything. Just uh, one, one, one question that I've always wanted to ask someone working with precision nutrition is the idea of the body type, so the endo-ecto-mesomorph and the nutritional guidelines. Like, There's a guy in England called Phil Lerney, and, and he often uses that as well, the somatotypes, and he says it came from the work of, of uh, William Shel- Sheldon, is it? He's a psychologist or something like that. So I'm just always interested, where did uh, JB or whoever it was come up with, with, with this? You know, that's a good question. I was actually recently just talking to, to Chris and Scott Dixon about it, and it was... It's something that JB's had before my time there, before even her time there. She's been with PN for you know, five, five, six years, maybe even, maybe even longer. Um, so exactly its, its origin, I couldn't even tell you, <laughs> as amazing as that is. But the way I look at it is, you know, somatotypes and like the endo, meso, and, and, and ecto are basically like proxies for, you know, genetic profiles. So if someone's an endomorph, they tend to be someone who doesn't overexpend a lot of energy when you know, they overeat. You know, there, there's research on overfeeding studies. When you overfeed people by a thousand calories a day, there are some people who unconsciously move a ton more. They fidget more. They pace more. They stand more. Uh, basically, what happens is your hypothalamus recognizes, like you know, leptin goes up, insulin goes up, all these uh, satiety hormones are going up consistently, so it, it increases energy expenditure. Your hypothalamus is what controls your, your blood pressure, your body temperature, and your, and your body fat. Um, so it basically ramp up your calories out. There are people who expended hundreds of extra calories a day, almost 700, and they tend to be people who have more of an ectomorphic appearance because they are movers and pacers and they expend tons and tons of energy and calories. Whereas for people on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who didn't expend any extra calories. Uh, and they tend to be your endomorphs. And so they're people who don't move as much, don't overcome increased intakes, tend to have you know, a lower insulin sensitivity, lower glucose tolerance, probably because they don't move as much. Uh, might be some other genetic reasons in there as well. But really those, those somatotypes are just a proxy for what we consider to be like your genetic markers or, or needs for foods. So uh, like carb needs, for example, that's why we have endomorphs only consume you know, like one cupped handful of carbs at each meal for men and a half cup for women because they tend to have a lower need because they don't move as much and they tend to have a lower tolerance to to carbohydrates in general. Whereas ectomorphs, we recommend like three cupped handfuls of carbs for men per meal and, and two cupped handfuls for women because they tend to be people who, you know, they tend to do endurance activities because they tend to be better at them. It just fits their, their genetic profile well. So they have a higher demand for carbohydrates. They tolerate them well. They, they quite frankly, they just need more of them. Yeah. So that's really how we use them. I, you know, I can't guarantee you that that setup works perfectly every time. It's simply a, a tool. You know, it gives you it's a proxy. So it's not 100% guaranteed to work, but there are general trends that we see over and over again with clients. And so you can you can help tailor their intake that way um, if they're at that point. Yeah, it's just a, a, a set point to begin with. And you can kind of exactly just tailor from there. But when when you say uh, when you say carbs like with those with those splits you know so like the carb protein and fat split are the carbs made are you talking like so let's say with the with the with the mesomorph they're kind of that um, they're that you know thirty percent protein thirty percent fat forty percent carbs is is, right. is is that carbs is that including both starch and non starch or is yes. it yeah okay yes. so so yeah so like to flesh that a bit more so a mesomorph setup is our standard. 
um, Zone starting type. point yeah. for like level ones. You know, when you get to level two, then maybe you end up doing you know body type breakdowns. But for a level one either, we use that standard like mesomorph type intake, which for a man would be like two palm sized portions of protein, uh, two fist sized portions of vegetables, two cupped handfuls of carbohydrates, and two entire thumbs of like a fat dense food at every meal, assuming you eat about four times a day. For women, it would be one of each of those things, one palm-sized portion, one fist-sized portion of, of veggies, uh, one palm-sized portion of protein, one cup handful of carbs, and one entire thumb of fats about four times a day. But it's just a starting point, and it'll help you get you know, adequate protein for your needs, adequate healthy fats to sustain immune system and, and hormone production, adequate carbohydrates to help fuel your training, recover from your training, maintain you know, testosterone, keep cortisol down, things like that. So it gives you a nice broad mix of everything. You get plenty of, of fruits and vegetables for your produce needs. So it just ends up covering all your bases without having to do any fancy math or measuring. Um, and yeah, you're, you're getting in plenty of protein. You're getting in plenty of carbs. And yes, that includes fruit would be a cup, you know, any type of cup handful of carb would be either any type of fruit or any type of like, you know, starch or grain. So whole grains, whole wheat, sprouted grains, rye, rice, quinoa, potatoes, beans, sweet potatoes, buckwheat uh, things like that yeah, yeah. so with, like with that total 40 percent would things like broccoli and cauliflower be put in there or a veg free type thing uh, well they they kind of count towards that 40 percent but we we measure carbohydrates with just a fist sized portions they're separate like when you're building out your meal you know so if you're going to have two palms of proteins so maybe it's a big chicken breast yeah you know two fists of vegetables maybe it's you know some sauteed asparagus yeah um uh, so yes, do the, does the asparagus have carbohydrates? Yes, but it's not what I would consider to be a, a carbohydrate dense food. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So like, if, if you were, so if you were talking carbohydrate dense food, so yeah. your fruits and your starches and grains, that's what falls in your carbohydrate category. Uh, and sweet potatoes and potatoes, even though they're technically vegetables, they're a very starchy. Uh, I consider them to be a, a carbohydrate source, so any type of carbohydrate dense food. Yeah. So it's just uh, to finalize that, if you were just I'm just putting this out there, like roughly going off 3,000 calories and you broke it down to that 40, 30, 30, would you be counting like the likes of broccoli and spinach in that 3,000 or today it's just the carbohydrate dense foods? Uh, no, the, the, your vegetables still count as calories. They still inherently contain calories. But I wouldn't want someone to, to be counting every calorie and trying to factor in exactly how many calories they're getting from vegetables because quite frankly... It's, it's not how we want them to, to, to worry about it. Yeah. Counting calories, well, calories count, but calories absolutely matter. The laws of thermodynamics are laws. Uh, counting calories is an exercise in futility long term. It becomes yeah, not as tedious and, and, quite frankly, impossible because calorie counts actually fluctuate more than people realize. So that's why we teach those, those hand-sized portions because it does the calorie counting for you. Yeah. It gives you the protein you need, the, the carbs you need, the fiber you need, the vegetables you need. And then if, it's, if you're not making the progress you want to make, you can simply remove a cupped handful of carbs or a thumb of fats from a few meals. Or if you want to gain muscle, you add a cupped handful of carbs or a thumb of fats to a few meals. So you don't have to count calories because they're inherently built into those appropriate portion sizes. Just finally, from that body type and stuff, uh, you know, like I've done metabolic typing and, and, um, and I've studied it. I studied like the, the, the original form from uh, Dr. William Donald Kelly. And so my question to you is, what would your thought process be on trying to distinguish someone's autonomic nervous system with regards to nutritional protocols? So, 
his original work was like he'd say you're you're more parasympathetic dominant or sympathetic dominant or you're kind of a balanced type so he kind of used that more so let's say you guys kind of use the somatotype and he kind of used more the autonomic nervous system in a very like comprehensive questionnaire have you ever looked into anything like that or uh, we actually kind of have that somewhat built into the somatotypes. Like if you look at them, yeah. you know, we have like our endomorph, and we talk about how they're parasympathetic nervous system dominant, and we talk about how it's it's the opposite for uh, for ectomorphs, ectomorphs you know, yeah. balanced type, which would be your mesos. That um, there, there is a lot so of carry, there is a lot of carryover between them. Right. Yeah, the ectos are so usually your sympathetic. It all into like one because it just makes it easier than having multiple different possible streams. Um, you know, in terms of the effectiveness of you know getting deep into that kind of stuff. I mean, the way I view them is they're just a, 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 another tool, another approach that you can try if what you're currently doing is not working. Like if you're, say you started going with that middle ground, right, the, the two, 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 and two, and the one, 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 and one for women, and it's not giving you the results you want, so you want to adjust by body type, that's just simply another approach you can take to see if that'll help facilitate change. Yeah, yeah. Now, the same thing with the, with the body types you're talking about. Uh, you know, it, to me, it's a, it's possible it'll help. I certainly can't guarantee it's because you actually fit those profiles. You know, how validated those approaches are is certainly up for debate. Yeah. Just last few few questions, uh, Brian, and I'll let you go. Uh, just with regards to circadian rhythms, is that something you, you would eventually touch onto with, with clients, or would you do any coach on that? Personally, myself, like I'm huge massive on circadian rhythms almost early as much as nutrition because your circadian cycle just controls so much activity in your body you know your hormones your blood sugar your immune system um you know so it just has such a and your neurotransmitters and your neurotransmitter balance so it's just it's a huge thing is it something you would eventually touch on with, with people or do you leave yeah it? oh within pn coaching like, so if you do one of our, our pn coaching programs for example uh, like we used to call lean eating so you go through a habit-based approach right you go through learning to eat slowly and only eat until you're satisfied and, and protein and veggies and, and things yeah, like that. Yeah. And eventually, I think like the, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but maybe the eighth habit is sleep. I mean, it's, it's very high up on the list, even though it's considered to be like a nutrition coaching program. You know, we, we definitely get into sleep and de-stressing, meditation, because uh, sleep and your, and your circadian rhythm are absolutely, they're, they're that third leg, right? Nutrition exercise and recovery yeah. are all intertwined. Uh, if you're missing out on that recovery component on, on an inappropriate amount and, and quality of sleep, uh, then you're really doing yourself a disservice. So we absolutely, and personally in my own coaching practice, always discuss sleep. You know, my, my nutrition and training recommendations will be negated if someone's getting four hours of sleep a night. Yeah, yeah. You know, so no matter how good your nutrition is, you, you can't recover if you're actually not sleeping. Your, your brain especially needs that sleep to regenerate, remove, you know, cellular debris, and basically refresh and restore. So we definitely get into, we don't necessarily discuss it as circadian rhythm per se, we try not to keep getting into it to be too complicated unless some specific clients want those kind of details, but yeah. for the most part, uh, we, we really tend to focus on sleep quantity and quality. I actually wrote an article uh, for the site called, like, I think it's called Hacking Sleep, Engineering a Good Night's Sleep all about how to optimize your sleep environment, create a nightly sleep routine, waking up appropriately, um, things of that nature to help, really help to, to get your circadian rhythm in line with, with your needs, but it, we don't really word it that way, per se. I, uh, I always just say to clients, like, if you could bottle, if you could bottle and sell what sleep does to your body, you'd be a, <laughs> you'd be a billionaire, like, you, you couldn't, right. like, if... Like, many people think coffee is uh, sleep in a cup, right, or, or Red Bull is sleep in a 
can. Unfortunately, it's not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, I, 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 I'm similar to yourself. But I, I would probably. It, it's a little bit earlier on with me when I, I touch on sleep. But uh, it's definitely something I, you know, I try and educate people on. You know, exactly setting up a sleep culture. You know, like having a colder room, blackout curtains, making making sure your room's dark. Try and get the electronics off. Set up a routine of like. And I, I try and get people into the habit of an hour of wind down before bed. Now, I, I do two kind of protocols. I do a sort of, I do one where I get people to go kind of from the, it's kind of like a front side approach. So trying to get them to go go to bed, let's say, uh, how am I trying to explain this? So front side approach is where like they'll go to bed from like say the evening and go to bed where a backside approach is where you get those people who don't go to bed until two in the morning and you're like, can you just go to bed at a quarter to one in the morning, half one in the morning? And you're going backwards with it rather than sort of forwards, if that makes sense. Right. So, but yeah, circadian rhythms. I did a great podcast with a woman who wrote a book called Lights Out, T.S. Wiley, and she talks all about circadian rhythms and, you know, how circadian mismatches can contribute to, like, you know, heart disease, cancer, depression, mm-hmm. obesity. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really good. One question I've always wanted to ask you is dairy. I, I think one of the first sort of nutritional articles I've seen you write on was uh, about, like, raw dairy and, you know, you were big into hmm. to, to dairy at the time, or you seem to be, and... Because uh, it was, it was kind of, I was getting into Western Price type stuff, and I was like, you know, no one yeah. talks about raw dairy, and I just saw this, you know, Brian St. Pierre about raw dairy. I think Eric might have put up one of those, you know, three things you need to read this week, you know, raw milk from Yeah, 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 yeah. So, what, what, what are you, what's your t- whole take on the whole dairy situation? Uh, well, the whole dairy situation, probably beyond the scope of this talk, that could be a, a podcast in and of itself. But in terms of, of raw dairy, raw milk, um, I do think there are some inherent advantages to having your milk not pasteurized, right? There's greater whey content, there are higher, higher amounts of bioactive fractions, there's naturally occurring probiotics in, in raw milk. Um, however, pasteurization does make milk safer. The vast majority of, of food illnesses from dairy come from raw dairy, unpastured dairy, unpasteurized dairy, in the U.S. at, at least. So, you know, there, there are trade-offs, right, like what we were discussing earlier with cooked food versus uncooked food, right, there are trade-offs. Same thing with raw milk versus pasteurized milk. So, personally, um, prior to having kids, I drank raw milk and had some raw dairy. But once my wife became pregnant, or we were thinking about having her become pregnant, uh, we got away from it simply because it wasn't worth the risk. Because you have something called listeria, uh, which occurs sometimes in unpasteurized milk and can be deadly to an unborn virus. Uh, so, an unborn virus, an unborn fetus. Um, so, it wasn't worth the risk to us anymore. The trade off was no longer worth it. In that circumstance, and I haven't had any raw milk in the house since having kids, because with young children, they're not as robust and, and as strong essentially as a full-grown adult. Um, so listeria is still a concern. And so, you know, to me, at, at this stage in my life, it's no longer worth it. And that's why you know the answer is always context-dependent. You know, if you're a 24-year-old college grad who's single and looking to just take everything to the next level, um, something to consider or to look into and research on your own. Mm-hmm. But if you are like me and you have, you're married and you have kids, or you look thinking about having kids, you know, it, it may no longer be worth it for you. And some people will argue against that because many people grew up on farms and drank unpasteurized milk and didn't have any issues. And that's true. But the risk was no longer worth it for me. So that's, that's my take on it. Uh, just completely going off topic now, Derry, have you ever looked into any of the work of Jack Cruz? No, that name doesn't sound familiar to me. Uh, I might just send you some stuff then after the podcast. See what you think. Uh, and now it's it's um, it's it's way far removed from what PN do now, you know. So, but I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on it. So it might be something we'll discuss over email later. Sure. 
Um, just one thing I actually wanted to add, I only literally have two questions left. The one thing I wanted to add, just from the gluten thing we were talking about earlier on, I know you were saying that, and actually that's something else I meant to ask you too, if you could send me on some of those papers about refined versus whole and the information, I'd be very interested in looking at those. Um, there, there does seem to be research with gluten being a, a huge, uh, having a huge negative effect on neurological tissue. Have you come across any of those? Uh, I wouldn't say huge. I've, I've come across a few things. I actually did, this isn't that well known, but I did my master's in, in college on wheat. Um, so I did, a, I did a lot of research on wheat, not necessarily on, the, on that type of components. You know, we didn't dig into neurological responses. It was more fiber and fructans and antioxidants and phytonutrients in wheat. Um, but the neurological stuff, there, there is some uh, preliminary and, and somewhat compelling information but, I mean, you're talking such early stage stuff, you can't draw any definitive conclusions from yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And then I also look at, okay, so what, is, what do you actually see in the real world with people? You know, what, humans have been consuming grains for what seems to be actually over 100,000 years. Um, you know, contrary to the popular belief of, you know, just the past 10,000 years. Yes, it's become a much bigger component of our diet in the past 10,000 years. And many people consume, you know, excessive amounts of, of refined sources because they get it in all the processed foods that they eat. Um, but you look at the history of human grain consumption, and it's long and varied. Um, you know, then there's the discussion of, well, we've hybridized wheat, we've made it, you know, taller and, or shorter to increase the protein content without having it fall over and, and whatnot. And so, yeah, there could be some potential risks from that. Um, I think it's probably not what it's been made out to be. The, the research is interesting, but it is very, very, very early and far from being definitive enough, definitive enough to say, yes, we need to be more concerned about gluten and neurological issues. Yeah, yeah. I think there are some people who are probably more prone to it. Like I said earlier, maybe it's a result of everything else in our environment that's exacerbating the issue, making us more susceptible to potential problems. Um, but I find it unlikely that it's a main driver of issues in our society today yeah yeah just uh it's it's funny because uh, you did an interview with danny landon one of my friends before and like yeah. danny danny was saying you know brian's a real kind of straight down the road guy which i listened to the interview too like and he's like you know brian's really like you know, situation dependent but like again the answer in so many things is it depends and i suppose with the gluten thing you know a lot of people there is a lot of people who are like listen we've seen this before you know carbs we've seen it with fat we've seen it with carbs it's it's going to happen with protein too this whole mTOR pattern you know if you eat too much protein you trigger mTOR it ages you faster and then some people are saying well it only really I don't know it doesn't matter not lead to matters and obesity whatever you know it's just like but it seems to be kind of with the gluten thing now as well that is it is a kind of an overreaction underreaction type thing again you know so uh, absolutely in most cases yeah there's an overreaction then followed by an underreaction and where does the truth usually lie? Somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, same thing with like protein. Yeah, does protein, you know, stimulate mTOR, could possibly increase aging? Yes, in a very direct, acute way. But that's just one mechanism, right? Yeah, the yeah. human body is not quite so simple. But it's it's but like I, I I don't know if you picked it up earlier on, but I, I was you know I, I said something earlier on about there's these trade offs like we we're talking about the cooked food versus the raw food. There's these trade offs. So like with broccoli, people are like broccoli's brilliant. It's like yeah, but it's actually like it has anti thyroid properties. Okay, you still you still have to eat a, a ton of it, but it's still you know for right. people who who might be very hypometabolic, you might be like, well, broccoli's actually not too good, you know. But yet it has all these vitamins, minerals. And people say fish has mercury, and they're like, yeah, but the selenium cancels out the mercury. It's like, oh Jesus Christ. That's just it. That's why people get so lost in the details, right? They, they miss that big picture perspective of 
But should we, we, we have a, we, we have an immune response like every time we eat a food anyway. There's there's always like slight slight inflammation going on in your body as well. So that's a normal thing, right? But we we want the right we want reasonable amounts of inflammation at the right time. What we don't want is excessive amounts and on, and ongoing. So people get so lost in the details of oh, you know, protein stimulates mTOR or you know, carbs stimulate insulin, which stimulates acylation stimulating protein. They go on, they get so lost in these physiological details and they tend to miss the big picture. Well, it also does this and it also does this. It's like not eating eggs because they contain cholesterol. Well, eggs contain far more than just cholesterol, right? They're a complex matrix of lots and lots of components and compounds. They, take, they contain choline and healthy fats and quality protein and the list can go on and on. So people get so wrapped up in really specific and, and somewhat and sometimes trivial details and they just miss that. A big picture of nutrition. They they, they they do what I call it. They major in the minor, mm-hmm. right? They miss the forest for the trees, um, and that can be important in certain certain circumstances. You have an immunocompromised client, or someone who has a very specific metabolic uh, issue, or they have thyroid disease already. They have goiter, for example. Okay, that's a, that's a case where you need to be ultra concerned about maybe broccoli intake. Other than that, you know, if someone consuming a little bit of broccoli. It's not a big deal. Now, if they're consuming two fists of broccoli at every single meal, yeah, you're right, that might be an issue, right? But it, it, it's context-dependent, and people get a little too lost in some of the details sometimes and then miss the, the big picture. Except for you, Brian. You can have any broccoli. <laughs> I, I, well, personally, I, it just doesn't seem to agree with me. So but, it's, it's, uh, a, it's, aspar- but, it's asparagus for me, Jace. Why eat asparagus? I'm blowing the house down. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's, that's just it. So no matter how healthy broccoli may be, in general, on an individual basis, it doesn't agree with everyone. Same yeah. thing with spinach, same thing with asparagus. So no matter how healthy a food is, you have to find what works best for you yeah. on an individual basis. Yeah, yeah, really. So, uh, Brian, just uh, and also sure with, uh, the, with the cholesterol legs, I mean, I mean, dietary cholesterol doesn't really impact your blood cholesterol, so. Uh, just finally with regards to you know resources um, you know details about yourself what are you getting up to so do you want to maybe give some resources to kind of the young listeners out there you know some books uh, or DVDs videos podcasts whatever your top sort of resources for anything not just nutrition training life whatever spirituality I don't care mm-hmm. yeah sure um, well, I was just reading a great book called uh, Essentialism by Greg McCown anyway I think it's called Essentialism or The um, it's a fantastic book about mindset and about uh, you know, approach to basically trimming away the trivial stuff from your life and from your work. It's, it was really, it's a book about work, but you can apply it to all facets of your life. Um, and it's, it's fantastic, so it's top of mind for me. Other than that, I mean, in terms of like nutrition resources, you know, I'm a big, obviously the PN website, you know, precisionnutrition.com. You know, I write a lot of articles, JB, Chris Scott Dixon, Ryan Andrews, I mean, people who are are really high up in the field and have a lot to offer. Um, so the PM website would be first and foremost. After that, you have like Alan Aragon's research review, you know, top, top, top notch uh, research review. Big, big fan of it. Something at PM that you know we, we leverage as a as a resource. Um, Wholehealthsource.org by Dr. Stephen Guyanet. He has some really great work. Tends to be someone who sees that big picture really well. Knows a lot of the details, but but sees the big picture. Um, now, other than that, for, for for books, I mean, I personally, I don't, you know, there's, okay, a good one would be like uh, by Brian Wansink, uh, Mindless Eating, who mm-hmm. talks about the research on, you know, how we, most of us don't have an internal control, internal locus of control when it comes to our food intake. You know, we, we eat how much 
much we eat is dependent upon our environment, people we're eating with, and how much they're eating, and how much is on our plate. And it's a fascinating, it's a quick read, but a very fascinating read. Um, the End of Overeating by David Kessler, former head of the FDA. Another great book and talks about you know, uh, food production, processed food, and how it's engineered you know, to have you eat more than you normally would eat, and things of that nature. So those would be some really good resources. Uh, other than that, if you're someone who's a, an aspiring trainer or an aspiring nutrition coach, you know, we obviously, like you, you've mentioned it a couple of times, you just completed it, our, our BN CERT. That would be a, a fantastic resource. You know, you've learned a ton about physiology, nutritional science, you know, proteins, carbs, fats, you know, phytonutrients and things of that nature. You learn a lot about um, all those things. And the whole second half of the book is teaching you how to actually coach those things. It's one thing to know them. It's another thing to actually teach them to another person. I mean, I'm just going to browbeat it over everyone's head. Because um, just providing education is only part of the process. So learning how to coach is another key part. And we actually also have, finally, our Level 2 certification coming out soon. Uh, level 2 is actually like a year-long, you're essentially almost like a almost like a PN intern. You do a year-long coach program. Uh, you get daily lessons and habits and case studies, uh, things to implement with clients and to test out and try out. And it's almost, it's probably 75% about the art of coaching learning how to facilitate change, some of the things that we, you, you've mentioned that you've really worked on and gotten better at as of late, and that's what L2 really focuses on. It teaches you some motivational interviewing techniques and, and other type of therapy techniques, and just, just general good quality communication techniques, uh, as well as some advanced nutrition protocols and things of that nature. So those would be a good starting point of resources for people. Yeah, just personally myself, um, like I only actually took the exam, what are we now, Tuesday, last Wednesday, so six days ago, my cert actually came yesterday in the post, I was surprised how fast it came, but uh, I couldn't recommend it highly enough, I, I really, like I, I asked, this is this is a not, no word of a lie, I, I bought the book in March, and I studied for the first two months, and got up to about chapter six, and then I moved house in, in June, so I kind of fell off the wagon for about four weeks, and then I literally read the other three from chapter seven all the way to 17 in like three weeks. I did everything, did the workbook questions, the videos, because I enjoyed it so much. It's like, like I literally came home every day going, I'm actually looking forward to reading this. I really enjoyed it. And it was just a really great resource. And I, if I don't do level two straight away, I'll definitely be doing it at some stage in the future. So I'll, I couldn't, couldn't recommend it. Uh, couldn't recommend it enough for anyone listening. So very last question, Brian, is what did you, what did you eat today so far? <laughs> today so far? Uh, I've had my, my usual. I have for breakfast. I do five whole eggs. Uh, I normally do a bunch of peppers and scallions, but I didn't have any peppers today, so I actually chopped up some zucchini. Um, nice. Some zucchini and scallions, and, and some butter, of course. You know, like a thumb-sized portion of butter uh, with pieces of sprouted grain toast. Uh, a little bit of, of some like uh, Maine-made like blueberry preserves. Um, they're fantastic, and a banana and some water and coffee. Nice. And then I had a. That was around six o'clock this morning. I make everyone in my family breakfast around that time, five forty-five, six o'clock. And then just before the podcast, I had my usual super smoothie, super shake, with a couple scoops of protein powder and some like sixteen-ish, twelve, sixteen ounces of water, some chia seeds, a whole bunch of spinach, big handful of blueberries, handful of strawberries, and about two cups of like full-fat plain organic yogurt. You, um, you fat bastard. <laughs> and that's, yeah, then I'll, I'll eat lunch and, and around two, and then I have my men's league golf tonight, so I'll eat dinner and have a beer after that. Great, great, great stuff, great stuff. But that's actually something we, I, uh, I'll get you back on some stage we've talked about the beer. I remember reading your art and you were saying about the health benefits of beer. I found it really very interesting. It was very, very good. Yeah, nothing wrong with the, you know, an occasional beer. But no, 
absolutely Brian St. Pierre Brian, Brian just stay on just for like 30 seconds I'll say goodbye to you when I, when I hit the off button on this but uh, for listeners what a great interview yet again uh, absolute gentleman give me an hour over an hour and 10 minutes of his time you know, so that's an extra 10 minutes but uh, guys thanks for listening to the podcast thanks for downloading and supporting me keep leaving reviews because it, it bumps us up on the all iTunes so uh, until next time guys take care I'll talk to you soon and stay strong Thank you.